Welcome to Four Quarter Lives. I'm Aviva Wittenberg-Cox, and I'm exploring how longer lives impact everything, from careers and relationships to the very shape of our lives. Truth is, you're likely to live a lot longer than you think. I talk with a wide range of experts and academics, as well as individuals designing and redesigning their own third quarters, the years from 50 to 75. Instead of recreation, they're thinking recreation. What can we learn from their pioneering roadmaps through life? After a couple of decades working with the United Nations on Latin American and Caribbean issues at both local and regional levels, Isabel Samalo was elected Panama's first female vice president and first female foreign minister. She became an atypical politician, taking up some contested positions as on LGBTQ rights, while resisting powerful invitations to run for president. She became convinced that she could spend more of her energies more impactfully by focusing on the issues she cares most about, youth employment and private sector adoption of the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. Her year at Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative is nourishing the transition from what she calls her second quarter madhouse to a third quarter of inner peace and clear prioritization on maximum social impact. Welcome, Isabelle Samalo, to Four Quarter Lives. I'm delighted you could join us. Aviva, thank you so much for the invitation. And just thinking about these quarters of life burst my mind. So thank you for the opportunity. <laughs> so I'm going to start by asking you as a colleague on Harvard's Advanced Leadership Initiative, why you decided to go back to school. How old are you today? And what drove you to that particular choice now? So I will be 54 in a couple of weeks. I'm 53 now. Actually, I have to say, ever since I got married, I remember telling my husband early on, one day I want to go back to school, one day I want to go back to school. And it's always been on my mind. Why? I believe that you need to learn new things to continue living. I have this feeling that when you stop learning, you stop living. Of course, going back to school is not the only way to learn. Many people continue to learn throughout, most people actually throughout their lives, and it doesn't require going back to a classroom setting. But I think it's a privilege to have the opportunity at this age and at this stage to go back to a classroom setting, let alone with an amazing cohort like we have. And and because you're part of it, you know it well. But I think it's a very different perspective going back to school at this stage than when we did early on. What's different? What's different is we've had experiences. We've had our careers, our view of things is different. Our perspective of things are different. The way we learn is different. We are no longer so pressed in the program. Thank God it's not designed that that way. We're not pressed about the grades and we're not pressed about the title that we're going to get and we're not pressed about any of that. We are just pressed by what we are interested in. Just plain and simple, what are you interested in? So for me, it's something that was always on my mind, and I'm just very happy. It's happening. Wonderful. Now, you know the Four Quarters is going to go backwards, and I want to go all the way back to the beginning. So who are you at birth? What kind of family, culture, city did you get born into, and how did that imprint the rest of the ride? I am a native of Panama. Panama is in Latin America. 
a very small country, very different from the rest of Latin America in that we have the nature of the rainforest, but we have also have a very vibrant city. So we have the the big city life in a very tiny place and also everything that an underdeveloped country offers and the beaches. And it's mostly a Catholic country. I was born and raised in a Catholic setting and I was raised in Panama other than a period when I went to school in the United States from 16 on, let's say. How has that shaped me completely? Being born in Panama and going to school in the United States and having the opportunity of being exposed. I traveled a lot from a very young age. So I think for me, it's always been easy to understand that people are different, that cultures are different, that countries are different, and that that's the way it is. And that that's the beauty of the world, I guess. Who were your parents? What did they do? And what values did they share with you? My parents, both Panamanians, both born and raised here. My continued to be married after about 50, I don't know, five years and healthy, thank God. They tried to instill in us the family life, the traditional family life, the importance of education, the importance of striving to do things, the importance of being good, particularly actually on both my parents' side, just, just helping out. I remember my grandmother from my mother's side. She was the kind of person who was not very wealthy, lived in a small town in Panama throughout her life, had her needs covered, but she was not a wealthy woman. But she was the kind of person that, I mean, she would take her clothing off if somebody else needed it. Just She was just so, so compassionate. And so I see that in my mother as well, but I saw it very, very clearly in my grandmother because my mother has had a more comfortable life. So it's easier perhaps to see that when you're very comfortable, you can share. Well, no, my, my grandmother was comfortable, but very basically, and she always shared. So that's something that has stayed with me. And my father is one of the most amazing persons I know. He's just, he's just a good heart, has not been a super successful He's always was in the private sector, sometimes in, in the public sector briefly, but he wasn't amazingly successful in the way many describe success, which is making a lot of money, building a great business. He was not successful in that way, but he's just a, such a good person and very, very much loved by those who know him. And just like his mother, and his mother was a very wealthy, came from a very wealthy family from she was a very wealthy woman she was born wealthy and, and died wealthy and she was always able just like my father is to connect very easily with people in the elite or with the service he has that ability he's very loved by all kinds of people so I was very fortunate to be born in a family that has just given me a lot of love many lessons a lot of yes love. yes and a lot of love yes so who were you by the end of your first quarter and what were your ambitions for the second? I did so much so early in my life that by the end of my first quarter, I had already graduated from university. I had already gotten my master's degree. I married when I was 24, almost 25. So I was already married and I had already been appointed a diplomat at the mission of Panama to the United Nations in New York. 
So at 22, I was exposed to the world, really. For two and a half years, I lived in this bursting city in working in a venue that connected me with all countries around the world. I think I had a lot of luck, a lot of luck. I mean, I cannot say that hard work wasn't part of it. Of course, it was part of it. But there's no way I could have ended my first quarter with all of that experiences, all of those experiences, unless I also had a lot of flux. And I think I did. What was I expecting for my second quarter? You know, in my second quarter, I felt that I spent running to do so many things, just really running around, not pausing for anything. And by the end of my first quarter, I was just like having that feeling of, oh my God, there's just so so much I need to get done. But, you know, not to get done in a way of, I want to do this and enjoy it, but to get done in a way of a checklist. And that's something I would have done differently if I knew then what I know now. (laughs) Okay, so you opened Q2 with a checklist. What was it and what did you get done? What did you check off that list? My to-do list was, I think, a very similar to-do list to many women around the world, which is build a family, build a career, be a good mother, be a good wife, be a good professional. Everything. Do everything. Everything. I was never stuck on like, I want to, I see my children, they have their future so designed. I never had my future that designed in terms of profession. I knew I wanted to work very hard at whatever I did. I enjoyed the global arena, but I wasn't necessarily convinced that it had to do within a business or within a multilateral or within government. I knew I heard a lot about public policy. What was not on my list was running for office. That was not on <laughs> which, that list. Which you actually suddenly did. At which what I actually did, did. I was 45. So I was in that second quarter when I was surprised by the invitation to run for office and hesitated, saying no, then said yes and did as a running mate of a candidate that was running third. So at the time, my evaluation was, I will have the opportunity to show my country that you can campaign in a different way, that you can have a high level discourse and you can be polite and you can be respectful. And that will be my legacy. I was not expecting that we will win, (laughs) but we did. So that second quarter ended with five years as vice president and foreign minister of my country. And that was not on my list again. (laughs) So I think one of the things that I really learned is that we need to keep our options open because there are things in our route that we cannot see, but that will be there. Absolutely. Paul, so what are you most proud of, of those years of service as vice president and foreign minister? You were the first female vice president. You were the youngest, I think, ever. What were you most proud of those five years? Of those five years, I think showing that public life does not have to be about being a politician. It's very bizarre. And I cannot say that I am not a politician because, my God, I ran for office and won and was in office for five years. So I cannot say that. But I I feel that I'm not a traditional politician. And I think that people see that. I really believe that, I mean, I run as an independent. I do not belong to a political party. And I think it was showing that to have a role in the public life of your country, you don't necessarily need to be a hardcore politician. And also that you can have an agenda 
just like you have, but not a political agenda. I'm not sure how to express this, but just like you have a roadmap when you're in the private sector and when you're a private person, which does not necessarily include being popular because you want to win the next election or being popular because you want to continue to be in politics. I was not interested in continuing to be in politics. I'm not anymore. So I was very, I didn't have that burden throughout the five years. I was not working for the next election. And I think people saw that because I did some things and took some stands that were very unpopular in a country like mine. Like what? So give me one of your most unusual or unpopular positions. It's a funny thing because it might not be so big, but I believe it is. And and actually it is in a very Catholic country like this one. But I was always very open and public about my support for LGBT communities. And I supported gay marriage publicly. And I did it as the right of everyone to choose a love partner, whoever that will be for you. And at the time, I got a lot of opposition from the population, a lot of opposition from the churches, not only the Catholic, but evangelical churches. And I remember the president coming to me and he's like, please stop this. And I'm like, I am not going to stop this, period. And that's something that I am proud of because it was... There are a lot of things that you do that are not necessarily so popular, but they're not so big in the public arena. But this little thing was very big in the public arena because we are a very Catholic country. And and you changed the laws. I didn't. I wasn't able to. I tried, but I didn't. At the time that I was in office, the Inter-American Court, Costa Rica was trying to... S- approve gay marriage. And because they also had the same issue that Panama had, the president, who was a very progressive man, was very astute at sending to the court a request for clarification if this regional convention applied to Costa Rica and the court ruled that it did. So I got that and prepared as foreign minister a very well-documented paper, which we sent to the Supreme Court, to the Electoral Tribunal, to everywhere, saying why this was also binding for Panama and tried, but that I wasn't able to. However, I believe that I did, you know, I got a lot of messages at the time from people from the gay community because it was the first time that anybody of my ranking ever supported something like that. You opened the door and the subject and let in some air. Yes, yes. And I think that's... That's something that I remember that I did many other things, but... Is there anything that you would have liked to have done in Q2 that you didn't get to that was something you didn't check off your list? It was not on my list, so I wasn't actively trying. But looking back, I would have liked to live more with inner peace and enjoy every face more and enjoy everything more. I I really felt throughout Q2 that I was running around and I was actually running around. I mean, I was. Yeah. Under pressure from too many uh, different parts of life. And it doesn't have to be that way. I think inner peace, I think now, of course, Monday morning quarterback, I think now that inner peace, it's really within and 
you can achieve it regardless of the pressure. But it was a choice to listen to those pressures. Or to, I didn't listen to any pressure, actually. I put the pressure on myself. I put the pressure on myself. I wish I had enjoyed more every step and leave more at peace with me. The classic juggling, impossible juggling act of Q2 for many, many women, right? And many men too from this podcast. So how did you end Q2? Who were you? You were then in a position of power for many years. Who had you become? And then what were your goals as you transitioned into Q3? I confirmed that politics was not my thing. So I confirmed that for Q3. And I was really pushed for my during the five years to run for president. I was really pushed by many. And I had it very, very clear. I had it clear from the beginning of being in office, but I had it clearer. I remember a couple of colleagues from the cabinet that came to visit. They asked me for a meeting like during our first year. And I'm like, you know what? Because it wasn't like with an issue. They just said they wanted to come. I'm like, oh, fine, of course, come. And they were, they came to tell me then, it was my first year, that I was clearly, clearly the candidate for running for office four years down the road. And that they wanted to recommend to me that I joined a party. There were two parties that were the coalition, a very small one. And one of the guys that came to see me was from that very small one. And he actually came to recommend that I join the larger one, which was the president's one, because strategically with having in mind that I was going to be running for office in four years, I, I should do that then. And I said, I'm not running for office in four years. And they said, ah, you say that now, but you will change your mind. I'm like, I, I don't think so, but I just don't think so. And by the end, I, I was convinced. So why not? So why not? It is within me to work on public issues. Like I'm currently working my, one of my ALI projects is on youth employment. And I am just so excited spending this summer working for that. And it's going great. I'll tell you about it when I get back to Cambridge. So it is within me to work on public social problems, but politics is not the only way of doing that. There are many corners from which you can work towards those goals. And I am just more comfortable from other corners. When you're in politics, you really get sidetracked by so much noise. You need to spend half your time defending yourself from things that are not an issue and not relevant, but because you have political opponents that try to undermine what you're doing, that will happen. You lose a lot of your energy in things that are really not relevant. If you are from another corner, like I am now, you can spend all of that energy in that problem. So that's one thing. Also, I saw very clearly that there are ways of doing things politically that I'm not comfortable with, that I don't like, and that are not going to change for a while in my country. I just didn't feel comfortable. I just, that was not my thing. So I had that very clear for my third quarter. I knew that, I mean, my family was also at the center, like it's always been. I really strive for keeping my children close and spending time together. So that was also what I prioritized for my third quarter. I wasn't sure exactly where I was going to be working from. And the, and the Harvard fellowship has been amazing in that regard. So I had some like big things, like I'm not going to be in politics. I will continue linked with public issues. I will give 
time to my family. Th- those were about it, I think. Okay, so now you're just a few years in and you've come to Harvard for this program. What's been the impact so far? What would make, are you beginning to see what would make a successful third quarter in your own eyes? Definitely, definitely being more at peace with me than I was during my second quarter. And I think that's not the objective of the fellowship, but it's been something that I've gotten out of it just from amazing cohort fellows like you and others. So that's one clear objective that I have. What have they given you? What is it that the cohort, how does that contribute to your inner peace? Well, a lot of the work that you've done, Aviva, on on aging and on couples and on, I mean, reading your book, which is amazing. I think it just gave me a big sense of the importance of being clear, particularly to those closest to us, about what we want and not giving up on what we want. Because at the end, life is so short and the the fellowship has really given me, which is what I believe an amazing upside, is that I may have still many years to go. I may. I very well may. You're only just starting. Is that what you say you're learning? I'm only just starting. And before the fellowship, I knew that I had one grandmother who died being 110 years old. Oh, my goodness. So before the fellowship, I knew (laughs) that, you know. You're going to live a long time. You're not even halfway through. (laughs) If I'm following my grandmother's steps, I'm not even halfway through. And if I'm following my other grandmother who got ill and passed away when she was 90, I mean, I still have 40 something years. So wherever I look, so I knew that, but the fellowship has allowed me to learn that not only do I, maybe I have a lot of years ahead, but maybe I have a lot of years ahead where I still have a lot to give. I don't have the stress of raising children. I don't have the stress of proving myself as a professional. I don't have the stress of that's done. Check. What I have is experiences and knowledge and energy. So I and networks. Have, and networks. So I have actually one of our co-fellows who has a program on youth employment in Providence, Paul. I've been in contact with the project and it's been so helpful. So the network, yes. So beginning this third quarter, I just have, I am very energized and positive and hopeful and really filled by by everything that it can be. And in working for it to be, I have gathered the importance of doing what we want. Doing, doing, I mean, we are human beings with agency. So we have the possibility of doing what we want. And the privilege of choosing. And the privilege. Well, yes, we're very privileged. And so this Q3, I'm just very excited about. So what are you focusing on? What's your project? How's it going? And how has it also just evolved during this year? So I have two projects. I will refer to the youth employment one, and then you tell me if we have time to go on to the second one. So for the past three years, I've been not able to sleep with youth employment, which is a big issue in Panama, like in many other countries, but it's a big issue in Panama. Most of our population do not go on to university. So they just have a high school diploma and then intend to work. And the numbers are amazing for their lack of possibility to work. 
And there is a vicious circle of companies asking them for experience and then not being able to get the experience on the, unless they're hired. So the program is very simple. It revolves around creating a big project for internships, paid internships that will allow them to get that first experience. But not only get the first experience, but doing so in a way that it really turns into a job. So what has changed? Paul's program in Providence is very much designed. Which is Paul Salem, right? And the program is called Europe. 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 It started 20 years ago in Providence. It's today, I think, in 15 cities in the United States. But we had a Zoom conversation last week with his team. And one of the things that really changed the shift that I had is that the training they do, because they train youngsters before the internship, the training they do revolves around the needs of the corporations. So we're not going to ask, you know, we're not going to beg, will you please give these people an internship? We are going to solve a problem for them because corporations have a big problem finding the right talent they need. So we will try to solve a problem for the private sector and for the young people by bridging that gap with training, with choosing the youngsters with a profile for a given opportunity. So that has changed. I did not have that clear at all. What I've done being in Panama for the past three weeks, I have gotten so many partners that I had connected with while I was in Cambridge, but we've been meeting every week in presence since I got here. One of those being the Chamber of Commerce of Panama. So that's amazing because it's an opening door to the private sector, which is very important. And actually five others NGOs, which will each play a role at to find clearly that we don't need to build a new foundation or a new program. This will be an alliance, an alliance for youth employment in Panama, an alliance that builds on one NGO that already does training, but maybe adjusting that training, building on another NGO that already does mentorship, but connecting those mentorships to the industry, to the intern, connecting with the Chamber of Commerce. So, so far we have about five organizations that will be part of this alliance. And actually, in a couple of hours after we end this conversation, I have the first meeting to present the project to try to get seed money for it. So we'll see how that goes. Fantastic. I mean, that really is a sort of almost perfect ALI case study, right, of a system. I mean, it's very strong on inviting us to map systems, build alliances, not create something new. And also the enrichment from our cohort mates who are already experienced in some of what we want to do and just gathering from them a recipe that you're applying in your own country. That's a pretty perfect ALI story, right? And actually, many of these things I knew, but sitting in the courses where we saw the systems design and the, and the methodology, it really helped me. It really helped me to tweak some things and be more precise about them. Very exciting. I look forward to, I will come back in five years and see how this is growing in Panama. One word on your other project. What's the other? It's on bridging also the gap between the private sector and the global development agenda, the sustainable development goals, and try to drive the private sector to be in bigger players in the sustainable development agenda. Depending on the industry, they can concentrate on these different objectives. But I hope to be able to do that from from boards or advisory positions. I think there is a lot of 
interesting that particularly after the pandemic, the private sector got very clear how exposed we are. But I think there is still a need for knowledge on how to best do that. And your 20 years with the UN might help them a little bit. Yes. <laughs> yes. So before we end, I want to get a little glimmer of, I'm going to throw you forward into your latter decades and you have grandmothers who've shown you the way. What for you might be a successful fourth quarter? How do you imagine those decades? I picture myself surrounded by my family, my children, hopefully grandchildren, maybe even great-great-children. I met two of my great-grandmothers. I mean, well, like I spent my first 15 years old. So I hope to be that. And I hope to be able to continue to work and contribute more than work in the traditional definition of work. I have very clear now, and I think that's also the result of our fellowship. I have very clear now that I will be active as long as I can. I don't know what that's going to be, but as long as I can. One, because I like it. Two, because I think I have things to contribute and why waste it if there's so much to do in the world? I mean, like the youth employment is just one tiny thing, but there are just so many things to do. There's no lack of problems to address. You, there is you can no have a lifetime of, of addressing them. Yes, yes. So my last question is, if you look back and forward, how would you, if you had one word or metaphor or picture to describe each quarter, what would they be? My first quarter, uncertainty. I, I was uncertainty and, and some stress of what will I do? Will I achieve? Can I? My second quarter, a madhouse, running all over the place trying to be everywhere, trying to juggle everything, not trying, actually doing everything we all have. I mean, the, the mother, the wife, the professional, the activism, the politics, I have that strong feeling that I spend it running around. So my third quarter at peace with me and enjoying every step a lot more than I did my second and my first and my fourth, hopefully healthy. I think that's very central and I'm very fortunate to be a healthy person. And I hope to stay that way. Hopefully healthy, hopefully able to, to enjoy and age well, surrounded by the people I love. Absolutely. I'm sure you will. And I want to thank you for walking us through your four quarters, <laughs> which um, the first half so full of impact and official positions and opening up entirely new visions for your country. And I'm very curious to see what your third quarter will also gift your, your home country. Much of the world's lessons, I think. Aviva, let me end by thanking you for this amazing opportunity by telling you that what you're doing of highlighting the transformations throughout life, it's amazing. It's not something that's been done too much. And I think it's something that will be very impactful. It's already been impactful for me in many ways. So thank you for what you're doing. And I will also check back in five years. Actually, I hope to check with you, not in five years. I hope to through, check yeah, with exactly. you all the way through. One of the joys of our year is that we've been knitted together very tightly, yes. isn't it? Yeah. Yes, yes. 
Thank you for your time, your energy, and your visions. And um, Panama's lucky to have you. Thank you. Great to see you, Aviva. <laughs> and you. Bye-bye. Uh, Bye-bye. Thanks for joining this conversation about Four Quarter Lives, where we're designing lives that don't just get longer, but better. For more, you can follow my columns at Forbes or read my own account of a year back at school at Harvard in my newsletter on Substack called Elderberries.